Well, we're continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And last Sunday we closed by showing that the sermon was set in such a way that Jesus was telling us how we should be reading the Sermon on the Mount. How we should be looking at it. How we should be studying it. And uh, with the choice that Jesus placed before His hearers, uh, the choice as to how they would be identified, I was reminded of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. It starts out, two woods... Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. And then the last stanza says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, And that has made all of the difference. In the parable of the wise and foolish builders that Jesus used to conclude his sermon, he sets down a hard line division. And the choice is ours. Are we going to build our lives in accordance with the wise builder who built his house on a firm foundation? Or are we going to be like those who built... On the sand, the foolish uh, builder, unstable. One group on the firm foundation, he said those are hearers and doers. The foolish builders are the ones who hear only, but don't put it into action. Last night, Jesse and I went down to Lincoln and we heard as Silas McCormick was challenging those of us in the audience. And he said that there is in any kind of literature or speaking endeavor where somebody is trying to uh, persuade, there is a scope that is presented and then there are action steps that need to be taken. And Jesus did just that. He sets the scope and then he talks about some action steps that need to be taken. Uh, We need to make a choice. What road are we going to travel through life? The wide and the straight gate, as Jesus said, is the one that's easy and chosen by many. But he also said that's the one that leads to destruction. It's the narrow and hard way, the one less traveled by, to use Frost's line, that's the one that leads to life that Jesus says few will find. Now, I don't think we accept that. I really don't. I tend to think that we believe that all of our relatives who were nice people are going to be in heaven. But the Bible is pretty clear that the way to get to heaven is pretty narrow and it's pretty hard. It's not easy. Now before I dig in this morning, I want to share with you a little bit about the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. You'll say, we're on the Sermon on the Mount. Why are you going to Isaiah? Well, more than any other New Testament, Old Testament book, Isaiah lends itself to being Christ-centered. What is spoken of as a Christological reading. 
So much so that the early church referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. And I think that's a fitting title. For the New Testament use of the word gospel is largely rooted in Isaiah's own use of it. Against the backdrop of God's judgment, Isaiah cries out, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Evangelion, that's the word for gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. It's the good news that although God's people rightly deserve judgment, God will come as their king and bring peace and salvation to all who trust Him. And at the heart of this gospel, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 to 12, is the coming of that servant who will accomplish salvation through his righteous life, his death, and his victorious resurrection. This is the heart of Isaiah's gospel and ours. And it's the substitution of Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be restored to God. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says the more we get to know Isaiah 40 to 55, the more we will understand how the first followers of Jesus understood the gospel. And Wright points us to Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 which says how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to Zion your God reigns Wright goes on by the way to say the more we relish the sweep and subtlety of the poetry of Isaiah, the more dimensions of salvation we will glimpse. The more we pray our way through it, listening for the voice of the Spirit, the more we will be led into the celebration of God's presence with us here and now. And the more we will be equipped to be new covenant people ourselves, working in the present time to bring about the true signs of the new creation, which is the ultimate fruit of the servant's work. Isaiah is indeed the great prophet. So let me challenge you. Isaiah 40 to 55. Now let me give you an example. We noted last Sunday that twice Matthew indicates that Jesus was teaching, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing. When disciples from John the Baptist were sent to Jesus inquiring, are you the one who is to come? Jesus told them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Could it be that Jesus was responding to the call of Isaiah chapter 35 verses 3 and 4 where Isaiah says, 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness. Jesus alluded to or quoted Isaiah more than any other book. So as we begin chapter 5, we hear that Jesus went up on the mountain. Seeing the crowds, it says he went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Well, obviously, you have to open your mouth to teach. So there's something going on there. And what the something is, is that opened his mouth was an idiom that meant he was speaking officially as one of authority. And here's what he said. Verses 1 and 2 lead us into the Beatitudes. And what we are given is an intentional portrayal of Jesus as the new Moses. Back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. And just as Moses went up on the mountain to receive from God the covenant that was to direct their behavior... Jesus is depicted as one who goes up on the mountain and then sits down to teach them what the new covenant is all about. Now let me begin by pointing something out. But not until we read our text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 down to verse 9. Or verse 10. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they... Per and, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were, who were before you. May God add his reading to our blessing to our reading of his word. I want to begin by pointing out something that has to do with the meaning of the word blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. And it's of extreme importance. In fact, so much so that one writer said on this one word, the entire passage stands and from this one word, the whole list hangs. Get this word right, 
the rest falls into place. We have come to accept translations such as the text I just read for you this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for instance. It's not a bad translation. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't capture the meaning in the way that Jesus used the word. Because language changes. We commonly tend to understand blessed in terms of an active divine favor placed upon us. However, in the first century, that's not how the word was used. When Jesus said, blessed are, he was recognizing that there, there was a state of being, not a gift, but a state of being marked by fullness from God. It denotes something other than simply a pronouncement of a divine blessing. Jesus wasn't saying, you're pure in spirit, oh, you're blessed. No, he was saying, if you are pure in spirit, you will be living a life that is receiving all kinds of blessings from that approach. It's continuing in the Old Testament wisdom tradition. Jesus is beginning his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of a true God-centered human flourishing person looks like. You can look at that list and say, am I merciful? Am I pure in heart? Am I hungering for righteousness? You can go down that whole list and you can say, maybe that's why I am not filling the blessing that maybe God expects for me to feel. Because I'm, I'm not like this. You know, it's the Jewish scholar, Pincus Lapid, he points out that it's not by coincidence that we find this word at the beginning of both the Beatitudes as well as the book of Psalms and several of the Psalms. It seems to be intentional on Jesus' part. And he would remind his hearers again and again to look back to the Psalms. Makarios differs from the word happy because a person can be happy who has good luck. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who are even being persecuted. I wouldn't call that good luck because it has to do with being fulfilled. Makarios is the one who is in the world, yet independent of the world. Their satisfaction comes from God, not from favorable circumstances on earth. Secondly, though Matthew chooses not to include them, in Luke's version, called the Sermon on the Plain, we find another version of the Beatitudes. Luke chapter 6. Verses 20 to 28. And he lifted up his eyes and, his, and, 
on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for, the, for so their fathers did so to the prophets. But... But, it's a contrastive conjunction. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I told you, that I would refer back to Luke's version of this sermon from time to time. And it's important at this point because Luke not only has the blessings, he also includes the woes. And the woes match the Beatitudes in reverse. Calling out the rich, the well-fed, those who laugh, and those who cynically speak well of you. The Beatitudes in Luke are actually the more expected pattern with a statement of blessing being followed by a comparable set of woes. And that's important because it was far more common to link blessings with woes than with curses. And we tend to think of blessings and curses as opposites. But what Jesus is saying, and he does, by the way, have the woes, you got to go to Matthew 23 to read them. The Beatitudes, the blessings come at the beginning. The woes come at the end of his public ministry and lead into his final week of teaching, serving as a bracket. So, just in terms of the Beatitudes themselves, there's a, three sets of blessings, three sets of three blessings. The first are for the humility of the poor. You may have noticed that Luke doesn't include the phrase in spirit as Jesus pronounces the fulfillment of those who are poor. The essential meaning is not changed. We need to remind ourselves, in fact, that each beatitude is a reversal of cultural values. Thus, it's wise for us to include both those who are spiritually, spiritually dependent as well as economically dependent. Also, I've shared with you how many see the letter of James as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Thus, it shouldn't be surprising for you to hear the antagonism addressed to the rich oppressors in James chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Those who are mourning grieve their experiences of tragedy, injustice, and death and reach out to others in grief and compassion. And this mourning is longing for grace and justice for the kingdom. And at the same time, it's a commandment to faithfulness and hope. The meek, that's not the milk toast. That's who we tend to think of the meek as. You know, yes dear, okay dear, I'll do what you want. No, 
The word in the Greek is the same word as the bit that is put in the mouth of a strong, energetic stallion. It's strength under control. And so, it's in in contrast to, to things like wrath and anger and violence and theft and violent takeovers. Thus, the meek are not like the zealots who condone violence to reclaim the land. And if we put these three Beatitudes together, we find Jesus blessing the oppressed and the poor for their powerful trust in God, their willingness to wait on God for justice in the kingdom, and for their devotion that runs so deep that they mourn. I shared with this with you not that long ago. When Paul went to Athens, as he looked around, it said he grieved because of all the idols that he saw. Grieved. When was the last time you mourned over what you see going on around you in society? The second blessing is for those who pursue righteousness and justice. The three Beatitudes combined in the second set are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. And the pure in heart know the temptation we constantly face. In the words of Scott McKnight, it's a temptation involving externalism. The social honor that comes with being pure in hands and in observance and in reputation, but not in heart. By the way, the best commentary on being pure in heart is going to come up in the sermon in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, where religious actions are done not for the praise of others, but in order to engage with God. And in 621, where the disciple is not shaped by wealth or possession. Again, James reveals an almost uncanny connection to the Beatitudes without giving so much as a hint in James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. That's why I've been stressing. You want to understand the Sermon on the Mount better? Read James. Third and finally, the last set of three are for those who create peace. And this set of three includes the peacemakers and those who are persecuted. Persecuted for both seeking God's justice and righteousness and persecuted and or suffering verbal harassment and injustice. We are to strive for peace. Even though we acknowledge that it's not ever going to be very widespread. Paul admonishes us to work and strive for peace so far as it depends on you. So, peacekeeping, it's it's really not being nice as defined today, nor is it tolerance as it's defined today. Rather, it's an active entrance right into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. So Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? You offer him the other cheek. Now what he was talking about was not a violent attack, but it was a challenge. 
And so what you do is you walk away from the, re- the challenge. My one-time mentor and friend, Glenn Stassen, and I was reminded of him last night as one of the guys sitting at the table had gone to Fuller Theological where Glenn went to teach after he left Southern Seminary. He has an excellent book titled Just Peacemaking, Transforming Initiatives for Justice and Peace. And we're going to look at this a little bit more when we get to those supposedly antitheses. You have heard it said, but I say to you, bad, bad translation of the word as but. It's a conjunction that can also mean end, I say to you. And I'm going to show you how there are three parts, not two. This is what was said. Here's what's going on in terms of the vicious cycles. And then the commands are all in the third part. So here's what you need to do. Peace involves active seeking and working for fulfillment. So... Let me uh, bring this to a conclusion. My challenge for you is to hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer anew. And I don't think anybody can speak more authentically than Bonhoeffer because he literally gave his life for what he believed. He left the security of a teaching position in New York, in the United States, to return to Germany Because he believed he would lose his witness as a minister if he wasn't there with them during the oppressive times of Hitler and the Nazi regime. And Bonhoeffer said, the faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. Anyone who wants true fellowship with Jesus must undergo a change which results in a completely new and different way of understanding values. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. And Bonhoeffer spoke of this as the extraordinariness of the Christian life. Listen closely to what he wrote. With every Beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people. And their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. It's particularly obvious in the blessing on mourners. Jesus means refusing to be in tune with the world or to accommodate accommodate one to self to its standards. Such men mourn for the world, for its guilt, its fate, and its fortune. While the world keeps holiday... They stand aside. And while the world sings, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, the man of God mourns. The world dreams of progress, of power, and of future. But the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment, and the coming of the kingdom. To such heights the world cannot rise. And so true disciples of Jesus are strangers in the world, unwelcome gifts, and disturbers of the peace. No wonder the world rejects them. Do you know what Bonhoeffer was doing as the prison guards were coming to take him to his execution? He was leading the prisoners there 
in a final prayer service together. Such a reversal of human values is basic to biblical Christianity. The ways of God of Scripture appear topsy-turvy to people. I don't say this to pat myself on the back. I say this to illustrate people's reaction. When I left Louisville, Kentucky to go to Martinton to become the minister, I lost $12,000 a year in income. And we survived. We prayed about it. Jesse and I talked about it. And we both said, we both believe this is God's call. So somehow God will provide. And He did. People that I know said, you're nuts. How are you going to make it with $12,000 a year less? But we did. You see, we have to understand that the culture of the world and the counterculture of Christ are at odds with each other. Jesus congratulates those whom the world most pities and calls the world's rejects blessed. Let's pray. Father God, short, pissy statements, but what a reversal they present for us. To be merciful, not vengeful. To seek righteousness, to hunger after righteousness. To be peacemakers. To be pure in heart. Help us to try to look like that painted picture that your son gave. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you.